Thank you, choir. We appreciate uh, all the volunteers that lead and helping us to worship the Lord together. And so the words that they just sang are so beautiful because they tie in exactly where we are scripturally as we're going through the book of Ephesians. Let me just read the text since it's so timely to the words you just heard. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The beautiful word pictures that Paul uses here, that we are fellow citizens, we are of God's household, uh, Christ is a cornerstone. We are the whole building being fitted together. We are the holy temple. We're built together as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That is a lot of language that helps us to see a word picture of a construction of a community gathering together. And so I wanted to be talking about that. I'm Dave Mitchell, and I'm the guy that usually preaches on first hour here. And so if you're guests today, you probably wonder who is this guy up there, and that's, that's who I've been for all my life, as far as I can remember. Uh, we'd like to address the whole issue of becoming the household of God. We're in a series of Better Together. We believe that we're better together when we have community, when we unite with one another, and when we engage with one another in a meaningful and significant, authentic, transparent, and open way. That's what God calls us to do. Sadly, what happens is that we find that there are people that do not want us to be better together. The latest catastrophic explosions by ISIS and the Syrian rebels and these Islamic terrorists are doing all that they can to drive us apart. And so we see this going on. Almost every season, almost every generation, there are those. I remember way back in 1971, I did a study program over in Europe. And for the fall semester, we studied and traveled around all the various areas. And one of the places we went, and some of you remember this, was East Berlin. I remember these walls as we drove through the little checkpoint and they wanted to make sure that we're all, you know, who we say we are. And uh, there on the other side were these spikes where you could see where they would prevent people from driving. I remember, some of you remember the stories of individuals that would try to climb the walls, make a mad dash for it, only to be shot dead by the East German soldiers. And in those days, it was this communistic takeover of a land that built walls to divide people. One of the walls said this, the world's too small for walls. And this very divisive way in which the world was living in those days of the Soviet empire. And then we saw Ronald Reagan come along, and, and the longer you live and the more presidents you see, um, the more you appreciate who Ronald Reagan was, right? And uh, that's not a Republican or Democrat thing, but there was something bold about him when he stood before that wall and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And that's the kind of mindset of boldness that it sometimes takes because of the walls that are created in the world. And then it seemed as though it was overnight. Remember that? Some of you are, are, are as old as I am. And you can remember, remember those images on TV of people standing on this wall where in a, uh, a year before they would have been shot dead. And it's like instantly this wall began to be torn down. It's interesting, the psychiatrist did a study when the wall was built way back, I think it was like 1961, I think, when that wall was built. 
Psychiatrists did a study of individuals, and the closer they lived to the Berlin Wall, the greater were their troubles of mental illness, raging, and addictions. And the farther away they were from the wall, the less there was that problem. And then when the wall was taken around down about 1989-1990, they said there was any, and they used this word, a quote, there was an emotional liberation that took place as those painful things of mental illness and addictions and rage and anger began to subside. Walls create within us hardships of life. And that's why the Apostle Paul is speaking to us. That's why he wants us to unite together so we become better together because it begins to change our lives. Lives improve. And so as we go into this text, let me take you where we were last two weeks ago, I should say. And what Paul was talking about there in 2.11 through 18 is that we, we are finding the person of Jesus Christ and it begins to be that emotional liberation. It begins to be the one who can change us. He says, but now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're brought near to each other. We're brought near to God. Jesus changes lives. He's not just another religion that we can have some radical extremists carry out crazy catastrophic disasters. He is one who comes inside of us and begins to change us. And when he begins to change us, two things happen in this first part of this passage. The first thing by review, this is just two weeks ago is that it begins to tear down walls. Notice what Paul says in verses 14 and 15, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one. And he's talking about both groups. He's talking about Jew and Gentile there. Because that was the problem in the, in the church at Ephesus, in the Tur- country we call Turkey today. In those days it was referred to as Asia Minor. The problem is that Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. And it wasn't until about Acts 10 that God began to break through people like Jewish Peter that it's okay to associate with a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. began to change their hearts. So that those two groups into one, the church, the body of Christ, he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, establishing peace. See, Jesus doesn't come and create some new regulations to live by. Jesus comes and he takes a heart and he creates peace where there once was enmity. It begins to reshape us. And in those days, there was these, uh, perhaps the most segregated day was the Sabbath for the Jewish people way back in the days of Jesus. Because when they gathered together, like we gathered together on Sunday, they gathered together on Saturday, and they would come and worship the Lord, there were walls. There was a wall to keep the women over here. There was a wall to keep the Gentiles over there. There was a wall for the Jewish priests. There was a wall for the Israeli uh, uh, lay people. And so it was a very segregated place. And Paul plays off of those walls and he says, no longer should there be walls dividing us. We are to become one body in Christ. In fact, there was a wall that said this. And here's an image of the wall and the words translated in English. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. So you go in the wrong location and you will die. Now I've said that about if you go in my office, you'll die. But I think that's a little getting carried away. And I thought about that just to, to tie off and very quickly. We have walls. We don't have the Berlin Wall anymore, but there are some of us have a wall between someone who has betrayed us. There are people that have betrayal walls. 
Then there are people who have an unforgiving attitude wall. You wounded me, you hurt me, and I disassociate with you. We're part of the body of Christ. We're going to be in heaven together, but I can't be with you here on earth. And there are those people who have an unforgiving attitude for the wounds that have been created in their lives. There are people who have unfulfilled expectations uh, walls. Uh, there are those who get married and they have an expectation of their spouse. And for those of us who have been married for any length of time, you know that you have to have... <laughs> Sometimes you just have to lower your expectations. Sometimes we just don't turn out as well as we were when we took you out on that first date. And some of us have friends that we thought, we have business partners that we thought that we could have this expectation of honesty and, and integrity and fidelity and hard work and show up on time and it doesn't happen. And we have unfulfilled expectations that becomes a wall between us and another person. There are some people who have certain sins that they will never forgive. That they think they're the unpardonable sins. You did that, you committed that, you're that way, yet that's your orientation. Well, I'll never forgive you for that. Uh, that's the worst sin of ever. And there are some of us who live our lives as though there are some sins that are always going to be a barrier between me and someone else that I can't associate with. There are anger walls that keep us from one another. And perhaps the most dangerous is this wall. It's a wall between us and God. And you can put your own words on there. For a lot of people, the words on that wall would be, God, I had this problem and you didn't come through for me. God, I had this prayer and you didn't answer it. God, I expect to be healed, but I wasn't healed. God, I had this expectation of feeling your presence in this situation and you seem to be distant and uncaring. So some of us have walls between us and God and we're going to hold it against him. Because he didn't show up, he didn't answer, he didn't heal, he didn't care, he didn't give me the money, he didn't get me the job, I didn't get into the school of my choice, and he seems uncaring and distant. And so that's one thing that Jesus comes to do, is to acknowledge the walls and begin to, like Ronald Reagan, tear down that wall. And then secondly, when Jesus Christ comes into our lives, he begins to change our minds and our hearts so that we begin to unite with one another. Here's the way Paul puts it in verses 16 and 17 of Ephesians 2, that he might reconcile. And every time you see the word reconcile in the Bible, you might as well put the word change. He wants to change us. He changes us in the heart. He says, I might reconcile and change them both in one body. Change the Jew, change the Gentile. Change the angry person, change the unforgiving person, change the betrayal person. He wants to change us into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity, this anger, this, this broken relationship. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. God wants to bring people who are far away and those who are near. In those days, it was the Gentiles far away and the Jews who were near. He wants to bring those of us who have those relationships that are distant and those of us who have relationships that are near, he wants to bring them together. That's who we should be. If we are the church that God wants us to be, we will be that church. We are changing our minds and our hearts so that we can unite with one another because the change that Jesus makes in our hearts as he gets rid of enmity. And then, therefore, we come to that passage I just read. 
Here's what happens when Jesus does that. When Jesus tears down the walls, when Jesus changes the hearts, then we become a brand new uh, entity. And we become, as he says, the household of God. And so here are some four qualities of the household of God. This is what we want for Calvary Church. This is what we want for every church. That it's like us, at least. And the first thing is this. We need to be a household where no one is a stranger. We learn to view others as fellow saints. Notice this wonderful word, uh, a verse in verse 19. So then. Now, so then relates back to what was just said. If you're a student of God's word, you know the word of God has flow, and there's context, and there are consequences of certain words that mean therefore certain things. So then, and that goes back to what I just said. So then, because Jesus tears down the wall, because Jesus changes hearts and minds so we become united together because of reconciliation, so then, therefore, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you're of God's household. We're part of the household. Let's think of sort of an analogy of that. Joe and I have two girls, Jessica and Kirsty. And imagine what it would have been like if, as those girls were born and then were in their cribs and their beds and their bedrooms and they grew up, what would you think of me as a dad that we get up in the morning and there's Jessica walking down the hall and I walk right by her and I don't say a thing to her. I ignore her. How would you think I would be as a dad if we then sat down at the dinner table as we love to do after school and work and so forth. And I sat there and I just stared straight ahead and never turned to the right to talk to Jessica or to the left to talk to Kirstie. What if I never talked? What if I then said, you know what, I'm not going to, you know, I've got a lot of needs and it's very expensive to provide clothing, braces, toothpaste. I'm just not going to, I can't afford to do that. I'll, Oh, maybe I'll give them a dollar every now and then and say, hey, you know, I hope that's enough. Take care of yourself. Because I'm not going to go out of my way to be extravagant or generous with any of you, Kirsty or Jessica. What kind of a dad does that? Oh, is this on? Okay. Yeah, a bad dad, right? Bad dad. You would think that I am the worst dad and you would be correct. No dad who has any concept of being a father would ever walk by his daughter and never say a thing. Sit at the dinner table and never address them. See that they have needs and opportunities for me to give to and they never, I never give to them except maybe I'll tip them if I happen to have a dollar in my wallet. But I never plan ahead for the braces. I never plan ahead for a college tuition. I never plan ahead for ways that we can help them get into their own home. We never plan ahead because we're just tipping them all the way and we just hope that they somehow work out. In my home, that would be catastrophic if I was that kind of a dad. And I say it's catastrophic if we have a church that operates that way as well. Where I walk by someone and I don't even say anything to them. I treat them a stranger, an alien. Where I never spend time engaging with those around me. I say that's catastrophic. Where I come to a service like this and I've committed myself to this body and I pull out my wallet and I maybe find a dollar or five dollar, but I don't plan ahead strategically to be generous so that every need is met. 
and every opportunity is pursued. For the church of Jesus Christ to gather together to be like I would have been as a bad dad to my daughters, to somehow think that's okay in a household of God called Calvary Church, that's catastrophic. That's falling way short. And it means I need to rethink who I am and how I operate. That's why I love, you know, last Sunday night we had Calvary Goes to Dinner. And we had over 200 people in part of Calvary Goes to Dinner. 20 different groups, 20 different settings. It's where we just gathered together with a group of people that we never knew. And when they, like in our home, we had people to our home. We had 12 people in our home. And some of the people, I wouldn't have known them. uh, And I just hope that when I opened the door and I welcomed them in, that they were one of the groups, you know. (laughs) They could have been just anybody. Because I I hadn't met some of them before. We had one woman in our group who had been to our church twice. She came by herself to a strange home, to a strange couple, to a strange group. And we got to know her. We had another couple that's been in our church for like 30 or 40 years. And how special it is to gather around a table and to begin to know each other. Because as Paul says, you're no longer strangers and no longer aliens. You begin to change. Now let me confess something to you. So I want to confess a sin. I don't know if it's a sin. Maybe it's not a sin. Maybe it's just a personality deflaw. Deflaw. That's the word I'm thinking. Defect. Defect. See, I can't do this without you. When, I, when I, I'm on vacation, isn't this nice to be back here? Hi, Bill. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. We've missed you. No. When I, when I go to a, uh, another church on vacation, sometimes I'll go to Saddleback Church. And why do I go to Saddleback Church? Because I can ride my motorcycle out Santiago Canyon Road. And pull in. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And you pull into that parking lot, and there's a little spot right close to the door, the side door of the church, where motorcycles can park. And then I'll sit in the back. So I walk to the back side of Saddleback Church. So I'm back here with you folks. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. I recognize you're in our life group. Yeah, this is where you sit. I didn't know you sat back here. It's good to see you, John. Thanks. And so we have myself sitting way back here like this. And I sit, I sit like you. I sit where I have nobody within reach around me. Because I don't want to engage with anybody. That's, that's my confession. I confess myself to you. Because I'm in a strange place. I don't know anybody. I just want to slip in. I want to slip out. I just don't want to have to worry about it. Get back on my motorcycle and go for a ride. That's how selfish I am when I'm on vacation. And so one of the concerns I have is that I'll walk by people at Saddleback Church and they've got greeters out there and I'll be pleasant. I don't want to engage with them. And I'll walk by them and they're like strangers and aliens to me. And what my concern is that we have people in our church that walk by each other and we're like strangers and aliens. And that's so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And one of the last things I would want at Saddleback Church, when I sit in the back like this, with lots of empty seats around me, I love that. So I get it. I get that. I get that. Like Sally. I love you, Sally. You know, you're here, but you got the room. I love that. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I love the room too. 
But uh, the last thing I would want at Saddleback Church when I go as a guest is to do what we're going to do right now. (laughs) Don't you hate me? Ask and answer a question. I know that some of you are sort of uncomfortable with this little thing we've been doing. But I've heard so many good words where people are connecting with other people in ways that they never thought they would. In fact, on our little Calvary Ghost dinner, we had people saying, now where do you sit on Sunday? Which service do you go to? Trying to figure out where everybody is. And what I want at Calvary Church, as long as I have breath to breathe and don't have another accident, I want us to become a church where we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are, as the verse says, fellow citizens with the saints. We're part of God's household. Because, again, remember, if I never said a word to my daughters all day long, and I walked by them all the time and eat near them all the time, but I never said anything to them, you would think, you're crazy. What kind of a dad does that? Well, Jesus uses this illustration, Paul here, that we're a household, we're a family. So I'd like to invite you to maybe, like Sally, you might have to move over two seats to pad over here, right? And just engage and ask and answer, how is the church, how does the church benefit us as believers? What benefits do we get by coming to church? Let's spend about three minutes talking about that. Would you no longer leave a stranger around you? but engage. Don't be like me. Don't be like me in Saddleback. Let's know strangers amongst us.
right, thank you. Thanks. I don't want you to be too friendly now. Let's not, let's not get so radical that we... Anyways. Yeah, so, listen, we're so thankful for all of you, and um, thanks for indulging me. I know that you have lots to talk about. And uh, we're glad. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, poke, at, uh, poke at you just a little bit. Thank you, Sally Geyerb in the back for letting me poke at her a little bit. And uh, so uh, thank you. Wasn't that fun? Wasn't that sort of that was pain-free? You know? So I know it's... Because I'm with those of you who are saying, you know, sort of out of my comfort zone. That's me. I get that. Uh, but I know that it's important for me to get outside my comfort zone sometime because I've become a better child of God and a better part of His community. And sometimes we need those prods. I sure do. So, the second thing that happens, so then, remember, so then, because He tears down the wall, because He changes hearts and minds, we not only are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're part of the household of God. We are, secondly, where the Bible and the character of Christ begin to direct our lives. Notice the next verse in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he says the reason that we're no longer strangers and aliens because we have a foundation that's being powered. And that foundation has a cornerstone and his name is Jesus Christ and the word of God. And so some churches actually build this cornerstone called Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And that's symbolic. That's great. But you want it to be on the inside of the church, not on the outside that becomes some sort of a memorial stone for Jesus. Because when you have a poor foundation, you have a building that looks like this after a period of time. And there are some churches that have poor foundations. It's not biblically correct. It's not built around the person of Christ. And they begin to implode and crumble. I had someone write me just this last week. I said, with the evil that she was seeing in the world, she says, I feel like I'm losing my faith. You know what I emailed back to her? Because just the day before, I had read Psalm 10. And so God brought that passage to my mind. Psalm 10 is the psalm that says, we live in a world where the evil people think that God doesn't care and they can get away with anything they want to do. But at the end of that psalm, it says, but God is going to come back. God is going to bring justice. God is going to even the score. And I emailed that, and she said, oh, thank you. I need that. That's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the Bible and the person of Christ. And there's a beautiful story that illustrates how that works. If you know this name, Gene Bishop. Jean Bishop's sister and her husband, her brother-in-law, were murdered way back in uh, April the 7th of 1990 by a fellow by the name of David Biro, B-I-R-O. And her sister Nancy was pregnant at the time. So he gunned them down as in a burglary gone bad. And he went through the uh, whole rigmarole and was sentenced and was in, for a life sentence in prison. It wasn't until 22 years later, about a 19, actually 2013, maybe two years ago, 
Jean Bishop began to feel convicted because she had this hatred towards this David Biro and what he had done to his, her family. So for 22 years or so, 23 years, she lived with this pain, this awful anguish of this terrible murderer. She said this. Here's one of her quotes. I had built this wall that was convenient for me. I thought, because you haven't apologized to me, that absolves me of all the responsibility of reaching out to you. So she lived with that. She lived with that concept. Then she read about, nine, about 2012, she read a, a man who had written an article or a, a piece on peace and reconciliation. And she was convicted by what this person had written, so she went to visit that man. And this is what that man said to her. No Christian is ever in position of privilege, wronged or one or wrongdoer where he or she is excused from the responsibility of working for reconciliation. And as she visited with him to challenge him on his thoughts, she was convicted all the more. So I think it was in January in 2013, she began to write David B. Rowe in his prison and then had the nerve to go visit him. And as a result of that challenge, she began to look at him differently. She made 15 trips to his federal prison and began to build a relationship. And here's one of the things that she said about that. I felt my heart hard and rigid, cracking open. I had always made a divide between Nancy's killer, her sister, and me. Him, bad murderer. Well, no question about that. Me, innocent victim's family member. The truth was, there was no division between us before God. We were both flawed and fallen. And God began to reconcile, tear down the wall, and begin to build something in this Christian woman's heart. And here's the way she thought about him. What I wanted for him before he was, before she had met him for 15 visits, was to rot in prison and suffer, and that would make him sorry. But what made him sorry is to experience the unconditional love of God and the forgiveness of his victims' family members. David Biro had never admitted to his crime until she began to reach out to him. And then he said, the more... This is what David Biro says. The murderer says, the more, Gene, you come and visit me, the worse I feel about killing your sister and her husband. That's sort of like Romans 12, heaping coals of fire. But the very thing that she wanted was causing that to happen by her love to this murderer. And then she said this in conclusion. It's not okay what you did, but I'm not going to hate you, David. I'm not going to wish evil on you. I'm going to wish the opposite. I'm going to wish that you will be redeemed. That's what it means. That's an extreme example to be sure. Most of us will never have to experience what Gene Bishop experienced. But that's a perfect example when Paul says your life is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ in your life, you begin to relate to people in a way that seems so foreign to the world around us. On the Digging Deeper on the Backside, I give you four examples of ways that Christ would interact with someone who was of a 
you know, a marginal way of life to us. And you can look at those later. We're going to look at that in our life group tonight. How did Jesus relate to these people and how should I be related? If he is my cornerstone, then he should be directing traffic in my mind and my heart. He should be directing traffic in my attitude and my expressions of how I deal with people who, like David Biro, have done some of the most horrendous things. It's a remarkable thing that Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness leads us to righteousness, that leads us to repentance. The third area, so then, not only do we have the foundation of the prophets and cornerstone of Christ, but you also have this brand new way that people connect. It says in verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So there is this being fitted together. The word being fitted together is this word, in fact, lego is one of those words. It means to choose to fit together. I chose you to fit together with other people. So you're a holy temple in the Lord. I'm a holy temple in the Lord. God, you got to be crazy. I'm not a holy temple. No, God says, yes, you are. When Jesus changed you, you became a holy temple. You became my dwelling place of the Spirit of God. This is a remarkable image that God has for you and me who have been changed by Jesus Christ. Most of us look in the mirror, most of us think about ourselves with a pretty low image of ourselves. Candidly. But God says, I don't. I see you as a holy temple because you're being fitted together. I've got a couple of woods here, pieces of wood here that will help show this. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Ryan Rail and, and um, Tom are building a pergola. I thought it was a gazebo, but it's a pergola. Am I the only one that didn't know the difference between? And this is one of the pieces of wood that they're using. It can be outside, out here in the uh, patio because we want to create places where you can fit in and connect. So they're building a pergola out there, and this is a piece of the raw wood that has not been touched yet. You can't tell it from where you are, but there are places like this where it looks like there's a little bit of a scar there, and there's problems here. It's a little bit rough on the outside. It's uh, got some miscolor down here. And God says to you and to me that before we are changed by Jesus, we're like a raw cut piece of wood that he wants to refine polish, and refinish. And so then you take this raw piece of wood and it changes because then what Ryan has done is he sanded it and he stained it and he's put holes in it because it has a higher purpose than just sitting around. It's going to be part of the pergola. It's going to be something that is created to fit together and the image of this is found here. This is what you're going to see outside. And you see on the right-hand side there where the uh, bolts are, this is what this piece is. And what God wants to do is to help us to be like going from a raw, unfinished piece of wood to a finished, stained piece of wood where we find others that are being refinished like us so we fit together and connect. We want to be a body of Christ where people are actually connecting in meaningful ways to construct and be part of something bigger than yourselves. 
Because when you're just a raw piece of wood, you're just, oh, just a raw piece of wood. But when God begins to choose us like that, make us like this, he fits us together. So together we become something much bigger than ourselves individually. As a church, that's what we pray for. That's why we do what we do here. That's why we have a family fun night on Wednesday night. That's why we have Calvary Goes to Dinner last Sunday night. That's why we have life groups where you can find ways that you can be fitting together with people you would never meet otherwise. That's why we make those awkward moments of the question to ask and answer to your neighbors so you begin to fit together. Because God never designed this life to be lived alone. And so as we fit together, we are that household of God. And then finally, the last one is this. It's a household where the Spirit of God indwells and empowers us to do great things. As the very last verse says, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Spirit of God, we are His dwelling. The Spirit of God is powerful. The Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, raised Lazarus from the dead. It is the Spirit of God that parted the Red Sea. It's the Spirit of God that fed the thousands with a few loaves and fishes. It's the Spirit of God that does great and powerful things. Because when we're fitted together, as I said, we're part of something bigger than just an individual piece of wood. We're actually part of a construction that's going to help other people. Now let me give you an illustration of that. And let me invite you into something. I've gotten to know a, a little bit, a family in our church, relatively new from what I understand, the Connollys. Nicole and Sean, mom and dad, had four girls, and then Nicole had a, another baby, a little baby boy named Noah. Well, Noah was born, and they found out that Noah had significant heart problems. There's, and I can't explain it all, except that it requires major surgeries to repair a part of the heart that is still in the process of needing more surgeries. And little Noah has been in the chalk hospital over here for, I don't know, like two months. I remember going in to visit with Nicole and meeting her, and she didn't recognize me at first because they would often, because their kids have to sit towards the back, and so it made me realize it's a good thing if you don't really have to see me up close. And she said, but I recognize your voice. And so, yeah, you know, Dave Mitchell, pastor. Yeah. And so we had a nice little visit there on the little couch next to Noah's bed. And one of the things that Nicole said is that, you know, we're, we're kind of new to Calvary, and we're saying, you know, is this our home? Is it not our home? I don't know. And, and then Noah was born, and Noah had major medical problems. But a lot of our pastors, like Eric Wakeling, Matt Davis, and others, went and prayed before the surgery. There was a group of people praying above him through the surgery. And she said, I've experienced so much love of people surrounding us. It's like... The, I think the, the, the term has been used, they were circling the wagons around us. And that, yes, this is our home. When we've experienced so much love and care and kindness, have so many people have come and visited and supported them. And here's little Noah at Chalk Hospital right after, just hoses and tubes and surgeries and stitches and wounds as little Noah struggles to survive. 
Noah went home just a few days ago, the first time. That's a huge responsibility. It's an awesome, awesome amount of, of, uh, of uh, work, stress, responsibilities to have the four little girls and now Noah. And here's Sean and Nicole holding little Noah on either side and the whole family together outside, looks like outside the hospital there or their home. It's a wonderful young family, but they've got a tremendous challenge ahead of them. And our little preschool team, not little, but our preschool team with Tina, our preschoolers and one of their daughters standing in front, they have this little T-shirt that's been created, My Heart Beats for Noah. And so there's this, been this sort of this groundswell. I'm just amazed of folks that have been stepping up to say, we want to do more. We want to make a difference. And so I'm going to invite you to help make a difference. In fact, Nicole is standing over there holding little baby Noah as she bounces with him, keeping him tranquil and peaceful. It's been a wonderful thing, just as a pastor, sort of, sort of watching and of so many of our folks like Shelley Davis and others that have stepped up and created a website. And this, this website is what you see on the screen here, My Heart Beats for Noah. And I encourage you to write down that, myheartbeatsfornoah.com. Because on that website, you have an opportunity to fit in where we gather together to do something more than what any individual can achieve. Because we're not just a raw piece of wood. We've actually been shaped to fit in to do something. So I invite you to, number one, pray for little baby Noah. He's got a, a long road. Pray for Nicole. Pray for Sean. There's tremendous pressure that comes out of something like this. But secondly... As you go to the website, you will see that there is a place that if you wanted to financially support them, you're able to do that. But also, perhaps more immediate, there's a place where you can bring food. And I'm not the most, you know, internet-savvy guy, and maybe some of you are like me. I need it as simple as it can possibly be. And so I click through this, and I click through it, and underneath there's a little place for food. If you'd like to bring a meal to the Connollys, and there's a date that are available, and you can bring a home-cooked meal. In fact, they have gourmet meals you can buy. <laughs> I looked at them. They're a little pricey, so you may want to cook up something at home. But whatever you'd like to do, we'd like to invite you to connect, fit in, be a household. And Nicole and Sean are just the latest I'm sure we'll have others, and I know that there are others of you, because I don't want this to be just like one. I want us to be something we just do, that we just are naturally drawn to, to give, to support, to care, to counsel, to pray, that the more we get to know each other, the more we can help each other. And if I had never gotten to know Nicole and Noah, I'd be clueless to the needs. And when we're strangers and aliens, we're clueless to the needs. But when the household of God does what the church is called to do, we engage at a level where we are constructed together, fitting together into something that 
accomplishes much more than any of us individually could ever think we could do. So I invite you into that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your love and kindness to us. Lord, there are unimaginable things that are happening around this world that are just so hard for us to comprehend and are grievous to see. Again, the families of the victims in Paris. Lord, the grief of so many moms and dads and husbands and wives and children who have lost loved ones. God, that's grief beyond anything we could think about or understand. But we pray for your care and your provision. We pray that there are believers, the Church of Jesus Christ, in that country that probably doesn't worship a lot, but I pray, God, that through this experience there are people that are drawn to you. Father, I pray for folks like Sean and Nicole and little baby Noah. Lord, what a road they've been down and still have in front of them. Lord, uphold them and strengthen them, encourage them, lift their spirits, give them hope. Father, help us to be a household of God, a dwelling of your Spirit, a holy temple that lives out the life of Christ, that is generous, that is kind, that is forgiving that is loving, a place where there are no aliens and no strangers, a place where we see how we fit in and connect and find meaning and value as part of something that is so much greater than any individual. Help us, God, to be that church for you. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.